What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole and I are without a camera guy again, so yeah. you're going to unfortunately be looking at this one one uh, angle of us. Plus, I was trying to redo some of the lights. That's why it looks a little weird in the background for those of you who are looking at the uh, video version. I think it looks good. No, thanks, man. I didn't get to finish it, though, so it's, it's definitely uh, it's, it's good. It's got some more to do. Yeah, I think we'll be without a third for a bit. What do you think? I don't know. I think uh, I got a couple ideas okay. of like trying to find somebody. We'll see. That I don't know if they're gonna work. But nice. I've been thinking about it. Nice. Okay. It just uh, yeah. I mean, if worst case, I'll just be ruining the buttons and then <laughs> just messing up what I'm trying to talk <laughs> right. about in the podcast. If Mike seems distracted, yeah, it's because I'm trying to figure out five buttons that, <laughs> that run the cameras. So uh, today is an accredited episode, and um, we are going to be. It's kind of, I guess, a little bit of a different topic, but um, we've talked yeah. about treating uh, major depressive disorder. We've talked about generalized anxiety disorder. Um, we've gone through the, uh, the David Osser algorithm and uh, his kind of evidence-based method for um, treating uh, major depressive disorder. But one of the things that he included in his last algorithm that him and his group out of Harvard Med published was uh, handling comorbidities and how that, that might impact or, or affect or change um, how you're prescribing for depression. And so we're going to go through various um, comorbidities, things that are fairly common. A lot, of, some of them, some of them not so common. But we're going to uh, kind of go through and see how that impacts uh, impacts the you know treatment of the patient's major depressive disorder, and if it even does in the first place. Right. Because you know sometimes it's not. You know we don't have to make these big changes, but sometimes it's secondary. Yes. And so we uh, we're going to kind of go through those, and uh, we'll we'll touch on the as we touch on the different drugs, we'll kind of go and do a quick throw a quick little review in there for those as well, um, assuming I can find the the slides in a timely manner. But uh, since you, um, since it's for CE, then I guess we'll we'll do some review too. Do you need to tell them about free CE and stuff? Or? Yeah, yeah. I was just about to do. I was just about to unload Perfect. that. Cool. Come Perfect. on, don't. You I don't know. To, I have. I don't a, you know, I have a script. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. So. As Cole pointed out, thank you to Free CE. Um, that's who uh, the accreditation and the CE credit is, is actually going through. And so if you are a member of Free CE's website, if you have an unlimited membership or the gold or above membership, then go to the website. There's www.freece.com and log in, go to the Learn tab, and then you'll click on Podcasts, and you'll see all of the, the various episodes that are available for earning credit. You... Assuming that you've listened to the episode already, uh, you're gonna we're gonna give you a super secret password somewhere in this this episode. You will you won't know where it is, and you'd never guess. But uh, it's right you'd now. Never <laughs> but uh, so we're gonna give you the password at some point during the episode, just to make sure you at least listen to some of it. And uh, that's your ticket into taking that post activity test, which is ten questions, multiple choice. You should rock it out, and you get your one hour credit for pharmacists and nurses. So. Thanks to Free CE, as always, for continuing to sponsor with us. I think this is episode 42 that's accredited, which is crazy. Nice. So, yeah, get lots of CE on FreeCE.com. Yeah, bonus points to anyone who does guess the um, guess the password beforehand. <laughs> yeah, oh, get one extra credit point in the quiz. Need, yeah, I needed the points. <laughs> you know I'm not good at quizzes. So, uh, what, what do you want to start with this, Cole? Yeah, so, um, like Mike said, we're talking major depression. We're specifically talking about unipolar depression. Um, we're not talking about bipolar depression because that is going to have much different treatment recommendations. And as we go through, we'll see that sometimes the lines are blurred there. Um, and that might prompt the provider to get a, um, more detailed history, or you might use some medications with caution or with, you know, a presumption that it might not work as well as it, it might. If you suspect that there's somewhere on that spectrum, we'll get into that later. Um, also, it's non-psychotic, so it doesn't have psychosis related to it. That's mainly what we're talking about today. And we'll briefly review um, some of what we talked about before just to set the stage, but the bulk of what we'll talk about today is focused on the comorbidities. And like Mike said, um, usually when we're talking about comorbidities, we might be talking about killing two birds with one stone with the medication. In these cases, it could be that if you're focusing too much on the depression side and not focusing on this comorbidity, you could be doing it wrong, especially if the comorbidity is what's causing the depression. So treating, focusing on the underlying issue could help the depression 
as well, but it'll make more sense as we get into it. Yeah. So I guess, uh, I think definitely like you, you mentioned kind of going back and reviewing the depression algorithm real quick. Yeah. Um, I was, I was pulling it up. I feel like that's definitely a, a good thing to touch on. If you, if you want the episode in its entirety, then, you know, you can find that on Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast that is, we've done one on probably a couple at this point on, on major depression disorder, but, um, starting off, you know, from, uh, monotherapy standpoint for a patient who's, you know, newly diagnosed or, um, or re-diagnosed if they've, if they were in remission for a while, um, they get the diagnosis for depression. Um, assuming they're, they're not in the hospital setting, you know, with like severe melancholic depression or anything like that. So outpatient setting wise, you know, we're going to start off with usually our SSRIs typically where we're kind of starting, um, you know, the, the ones that have probably the the earlier data, like the STAR-D trial or citalopram and sertraline, um, and then, you know, Lexapro and some of the other newer uh, SSRIs that have some other um, serotonin receptor activities um, could also be uh, options there as well. I think the one big one that we, Cole and I would probably agree on not using first line would be paroxetine just because the side effects tend to be worse and um, it's got a shorter half-life. The half-life is not even a full 24 hours and so the thought is that maybe it's not as effective. Um, it causes more fatigue. There's a lot of drug-drug interactions, etc. etc. So paroxetine is not my favorite but um, any of the SSRIs would be appropriate uh, to start really and, and the big issue with the SSRIs, uh, is in SNRIs for that matter, is the um, side effect profile, which can be pretty extravagant, and, and people react to these all differently. Um, a, a huge complaint, anywhere from like like forty up to some some uh, resources say like eighty percent of patients that are on SSRI experience sexual dysfunction, and so you know you know loss of libido, erectile dysfunction, um, inability to ejaculate, things like that are, are you know potentially issues that can come up while being on therapy that can affect someone's quality of life. And so we have to be aware of that. And so because of the, all the different side effects and whatnot, assuming the patient does not have um, any sort of like history of seizures, anything like that, then they also recommend using a potential first line option of bupropion, mm -hmm. um, which is obviously not going to have the sexual dysfunction side effects and things, but um, can curve the appetite. So if you have someone who's already underweight, so there's, there's some other reasons why you wouldn't maybe use that one um, as well. But SSRIs or bupropion is what he recommends starting first line. Then the big question, if, if you're not able to reach remission with you know, the first line option, the monotherapy, the next question becomes, you know, do you want to augment or switch completely to a new strategy? Um, as far as kind of knowing which path to go down, it, the way I look at it is in a very simplistic way is if they had improvement from baseline and you saw that there was a positive change when you started the medication, even though they didn't reach full remission, then we can probably go ahead and, and augment and keep them on that, but augment with something else with a different mechanism to kind of get some synergistic activity going there. Right. If they had no, you know, relief from symptoms, there's no change from starting the medication, you gave an adequate time frame, you know, eight weeks or so, six to eight weeks, and you still didn't see any difference, go ahead and switch at that point because it's probably not going to be worth continuing on and you're going to run the risk of side effects and all that. Right. So you want to go through some of the uh, the options for switching or augmenting? Some, I can shut up for a second. Yeah. So um, if you need to switch... Um, you can switch to a different agent that you haven't already tried that Mike mentioned, like sertraline, escitalopram, bupropion. You can kind of flip between those to see if you want to do that. Um, you could switch to what they call a dual-acting agent acting on um, serotonin, but also acting on norepinephrine or other neurotransmitters like Effexor or mirtazapine. Um, there's um, other less preferred options like... Um, OTC supplemental stuff that generally he wouldn't suggest has a high level of evidence. So primarily those are the kind of medication options to go to at that moment. Um, otherwise you could augment with, um, Seroquel or Risperdone. And he kind of specifies what situations that might be related to, like if you have high levels of anxiety or something mm -hmm. like that, which we'll be talking about in more detail later anyway. Right. Um, you could augment if you're using an SSRI. You can augment with bupropion or mirtazapine. Um, then he goes on to list some other things with lower levels of evidence, like lithium or um, T3 thyroid. And that, um, that's coming directly from that STAR-D trial. Those were both augmentation options in that study. Right. Um, he even mentions light therapy and 
um, like omega three fatty acids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, low, um, L methylfolate. I think he mentions too. Yeah. But you know what's interesting? The T three. I've always kind of looked at that as like how effective could that possibly be? Because you very rarely actually see that done in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the patients in STAR-D who did not reach remission in step two and had to move on to step three and were were getting uh, augmented with those either of those options, and this isn't exact, don't quote me on this, but it's it's around, it's it's accurately around these numbers. Um, The um, lithium, which is the one I would expect to have much better Efficacy mm-hmm. when patient, the patients in that group, I think it was only like maybe thirteen or twelve or something like that uh, percent reached remission when they had uh, lithium added on to as an, as an additional agent. The T three group, the group that got the uh, cytomel, it was like thirty seven percent reached oh. remission, which I was like completely stunned by. So it's not. So I guess mechanistically, surely it's not just like prophylactic for a possible thyroid disorder there's something else going on with it i so i think the thought yeah there's definitely other mechanisms at play but i think that uh the other thought is especially if they have like hypothyroidism as well even if their levels are all normalized but their depression's still there giving them some supplemental t3 assuming that you're not going to put them at higher risk for cardiovascular issues or things giving them some supplemental t3 can potentially increase the mood and stuff even though the the they're not technically hypo. Um, they're not in that. Uh, they're not subtherapeutic. Subtherapeutic anymore because right. their their you know, their hormone levels look normal, but um, they from a mood standpoint they may improve despite the levels yeah, not really changing. Yeah, I think it's notable that he really mentions a very select list of what we would consider some of the primary players in depression. He mentions sertraline, Lexapro, um, Wolbutrin, and then Bertazapine and Effexor. But there is a host of other things that he does not mention. Um, a host. A host. Um, of course, proxetine, and we could probably guess why, but um, yeah. citalopram too, which is very commonly used. Um, there's other newer ones, which this algorithm was published in 2019, but mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure like um, 40-oxetine was out at that point, which he's, I think he specifically yeah, he references that he doesn't feel like the data is up to snuff yet. Um, which I thought was interesting. I, I was the only thing I've seen is, and this is, I'm sure there's other things to be aware of as far as the, the comparison data and whatnot. But with um, Lexapro, because that was the one that was thought to be less risk of sexual dysfunction for a while, yeah. that was the one that was compared head-to-head to Vorioxetine. Um, I think it was, I want to say it was 2016. It was a, the Journal of Sexual Health or something where they can looked at sexual dysfunction, like risk, you know, comparing the two groups, and Vorioxetine was, was superior as far as less risk. So... Um, I, I think he. I want to say he mentions he may. It may be a different paper that he mentions that in, but uh, there is some some evidence that would would allow you know would would encourage you to use one over the other if that's what you're worried about. Plus, that's that, what I would think he he had there was a section where he was comparing his algorithm to other algorithms, and I think there was one from 2017 out of Florida, and they they referenced 40 oxetine, and, and that's kind of where he had his little blurb about how he didn't feel like the evidence was there. The this was four years ago, so it could. Yeah. Plus, you get the like five HT, you know, one A partial agonism. You get five HT seven blocking. So you get other like postsynaptic receptor activity, like action and stuff. So it's like it's one of those things that. And that's why I was kind of surprised because he mentions he talks okay about Star D some, but then he rags on Star D some other times. And he was kind of saying like, um, you know, with Star D, as you go through it, a lot of the mechanisms are very similar, like SSRIs are mm-hmm. very similar. So he's like, it makes sense that by the third trial, the uh, prognosis is very poor for if they're going to reach remission or whatnot. So you think he, he might be like, so let's try Vodioxine and has a slightly different yeah. you know mechanism than the other SSRIs. But, but he just leaves you hanging. Just leaves you hanging on the... But yeah, anyways... Because if this doesn't work, then just give up. I felt like it was pretty select, but it, I guess it's the primary ones that we might consider first line, but... Um, I think the evidence, the side effects, I think he had to, you know, lump all that together just for, right. plus it's so hard to fit those things in those little tiny bubbles. I know. I've tried to make just algorithms. For a, just for aesthetic purposes, you yeah. have to take something out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> like proxene, you're not in the list. The, <laughs> like, I've tried to make algorithms like this for my own stuff or the PhD yeah. students are, oh, they look so bad. <laughs> I was like, I'm so bad at making algorithms. They're all uneven. Well, you know what's nice now is the, um, the software is very helpful. So, I, I mean, I can make a... Um, basically take a group of bullets and like with, I don't know if it's smart art or whatever it is, but I, I can say like, turn this into like a flow chart and it's just like bleep and makes it look 
pretty probably nicer than it would I would have if I did them from scratch. I go, hey, chat. Chat know, GPT. A, a GPT or whatever. Make me look less stupid. Yeah, please. <laughs> Just summarizes everything. Um, I did uh, probably should have done this before we refreshed on that algorithm, but I'll just mention a couple things about the diagnostic criteria because I mentioned that we're talking unipolar major depression, but um, there is DSM-5 criteria that we've talked about in the past. But just briefly, there's a number of, of things that they will look at um, to diagnose somebody with depression. Um, five or more specific symptoms that are present during the same two-week period. Um, some of those symptoms would be um, depressed mood most of the day or nearly every day, weight loss that's significant, trouble sleeping, fatigue, um, feelings of worthlessness or excessive inappropriate guilt, recurrent thoughts of death. There's a few others. So a grouping of five of those. Um, plus the symptoms causing clinically significant distress or they impair social or occupational functioning um, along with an episode that can't be attributed to like substance abuse or something like that. Um, and then it can't be better explained by something that would have some mixed features that we'll talk about, but schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, um, delusional disorders, things of that nature. And then the patient can't have ever had a manic or hypomanic episode. If they had, then they might still consider this bipolar depression. And something we'll kind of reference as we go through too is some more specifics on the diagnostics, like is it major depression with anxious distress or with mixed features or melancholic features, atypical features, peripartum onset um and you can kind of kind of get into the nitty-gritty of what it is instead of just saying it's major depression yeah all right and uh, i don't even think we actually finished going through the depression algorithm oh, okay. um but uh augmenting and switching like we said and then if none of those options that we had talked about previously work then uh, at that point you're one assessing for comorbidities it could be you know, complicating things. Uh, also, you'd be assessing for things like atypical features and mixed features, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and then um, if that's still not, uh, you know, th th those are kind of dead ends and it's definitely just major depression disorder, that you're just resistant, then uh, you can consider things like monotherapy with TCA, imipramine um, and, and nortriptyline are the two uh, secondary amines that um, would have less side effect potential. Um, and then there's also our, our good buddy, California Rocket Fuel, um, venlafaxine plus mirtazapine. And uh, that's another option that was also used as a fourth line option for STAR-D as well. Yep. So. Um, and at this point, like you mentioned, this is, he would classify this as treatment-resistant yeah, depression. Yeah, for sure. And so in this main meat of what we're going to talk about today is treatment-resistant depression with a comorbidity. So when you have patients present, you're still, you know, kind of... Go, you're per, nervous. Per, per, I'm just kidding. You're nervous. per him, you're still going through that initial portion of the algorithm. And then if they're not um, responding, then that's when you say, okay, let's take a different look at these comorbidities. I would say you'd want to keep that in your mind the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, might, might be one of the weaknesses of an algorithm. But um, th that's just how he has it flow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel like if you have the algorithm kind of in the background of your mind anyway, you can, you know, make those clinical decisions at the same time. It's just you have a guide to kind of at least somewhat follow. Right. So, which is all guidelines are supposed to be in the first place. You're never supposed to, according, uh, not, you know, on, to the opposite of what we've had people on Reddit say, we do not just say guidelines are for everybody. <laughs> um, I don't think we've ever said that. In fact, I think we've said patient specific multiple times. Mike spends too much time on Reddit. Yeah. I, I Google core consult RX and then Reddit, and then I just look and see what horrific things people are saying about the podcast. There's nice things. Yeah, too. no, there's mostly mostly nice things, but my, I just, my, my focus is on I do focus on the one, one or two, but they're <laughs> some of them are pretty funny, but other ones um, I'm just like, man, what's this guy talking about? <laughs> Let's go debate. You can't help yourself. I know man. it's fun. It makes me it's good to have angry feelings. But um <laughs> so uh all right, uh, what do you want to do you have a specific comorbidity you want to start with? You want to just start from Coronary um, artery disease? Sure. Do you want to do that or do you want to start with the chron chronic pain portion? Yeah, let's do that. That's a good idea. Okay. That's a big, big section. So um, kind of finishing, this is kind of towards the end of his algorithm. Like I said, treatment-resistant depression with comorbidities. Um, and he has a few that he highlights as um, psychiatric-related comorbidities that can go along with the depression, chronic pain, um, OCD, ADHD, and PTSD. 
So chronic pain plus a bunch of other a bunch of other acronyms. Um, so I'll kind of highlight chronic pain. Um, so, like I said, at this point, it could be that the pain is the primary factor relating to the depression. So maybe we need to get the pain under control. Maybe we need to use something that can affect both depression and chronic pain. So that's kind of the the play that he's going for here. He would classify chronic pain as persisting for more than three months. Um, and it's, of course, a very common complaint. Um, and it's uh, predictive of a poor prognosis and is a main or is a, a major risk factor for suicidal behavior if you have chronic pain along with depression. So there's been a lot of antidepressants that have been evaluated for pain, and we've kind of talked about them before. Um, we mentioned like duloxetine and TCAs and things of that nature. Um, he would say that uh, uh, pr- commonly uh, a tricyclic antidepressant would be an option here. Um he mentions amitriptyline as well as clomipramine. Um, you're probably more familiar with amitriptyline, as am I. He says that's just because the primary care providers are more comfortable with amitriptyline, um, but he considers clomipramine an option as well. Um, I love this dude because he's a major, very subtle trash talker. Yeah, he, he doesn't. He, he, does, he, he drops some shade throughout this whole paper, which not, I feel like we've talked about this aspect of this paper before too right but he, uh, he does yeah. not mind he's ruthless call it yeah, he's obviously a specialist right he does not mind calling out the um generalists the gener- yeah. general practitioners now you might um, notice for some that things that they do the the primary care providers <laughs> they might they might be in the corner crying when they see <laughs> they have to treat one person with depression but not me stand there like an admiral um yeah it cracks me up um so he mentions tcas is uh, a primary one then he also mentions duloxetine, which has um, um, FDA approvals for some pain disorders, right? Fibromyalgia pain, diabetic peripheral neuropathy pain, musculoskeletal pain. Um, so those are considerations. Uh, there's also anticonvulsants. So he mentions um, carbamazepine for some trigeminal neuralgia. He mentions um, pregabalin and gabapentin. Pregabalin having FDA approvals for post neuralgia. Um, spinal cord injury, neuropathic pain, fibromyalgia, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, gabapentin, having it for post-herpetic neuralgia, and peripheral neuropathic pain. Um, and so he would say, he, he that, that's why the algorithm gives me kind of mixed signals, because in his discussion about this, he kind of mentions that you might kind of throw the initial portion of the algorithm out, and you might consider one of these if, like, chronic pain mm. seems to be a primary player. But then if you're reading the algorithm... It kind it's of not on there. it's not it's not the way that it's portrayed. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. He, he's a little confusing, but it, at least these are considerations for someone with chronic pain. And, and I feel like you almost have to have it. Like, would would the algorithm fit the general population for the most part? And then right. having the because the comorbidity is going to be the outliers. Mm-hmm. I mean, from a just a statistical yeah, standpoint, yeah. so that's probably what he's doing. Yeah. Um, he mentions that there was kind of a, a made analysis from a year, few years ago, fourteen studies that found a largely um, equivalent effect with duloxetine and other antidepressants, kind of saying that it's not as special as um, we might have thought mm-hmm. with the pain disorders. And I think that's why he kind of prefers TCAs. Um, well, I think, but, but to me, though, the, it's the duloxetine studies that showed a benefit were versus placebo. Right. So it's like we never said that necessarily. We just didn't have any data to support it, but we never said that duloxetine was like the end-all, be-all. It's just right. what they... Just what they had so I mean, I still feel like by by doing that meta analysis and showing that there was no difference in other SSRIs, where I feel like that's a good thing. Then we right. know we don't have to be married to doesn't necessarily deloxetine. take away from deloxetine. Right, just kind yeah. of raises the other right. ones up a little bit. I agree. Yeah, I agree. So he would say that the TCAs have a longer track record mm-hmm. um, of being used for pain syndromes. Um, he mentions that the doses of the TCAs are generally lower for. Um, treating pain than for depression. So that's something to note. Um, yeah. And, and uh, one thing I thought was interesting that he did mention was, well, but the like you said, did you mention the clopramine being more effective in that one study? Oh, no, see, I did mention it being more effective, but that, that goes back to, like, the whole general practitioner comment. Okay, I got you. And, and I ruined, I, you know, 
spoiler alert, <laughs> but uh, I had to know if Cole had already said it so I didn't sound like a complete fool <laughs> by saying it again because I wasn't listening. But, uh, the you know, comparing amitriptyline, like he said, is the, the one that most people are familiar with. Clopramine, a lot of times, you know, unless somebody's been practicing for a long time, probably hasn't seen that one because it's a fairly old drug. Um, you know, the clopramine, the, the, when the study that was comparing the two together, uh, clopramine actually had superior effectiveness when it came to pain syndromes. And, you know, when we think about amitriptyline as far as the side effect profile, because really any of our tricyclics, we're thinking anticholinergic effects, um, orthostasis, we're thinking sedation, we're thinking, um, you know, potentially like cardiac toxicities, things like that. So there's um, a lot of different side effects to at least be aware of. And so with the secondary amines, um, and, you know, especially with when you look at uh, amitriptyline in particular, tends to have the worst side effects. The secondary amines tend to have the least amount of those different side effects. But amitriptyline is like high risk for almost across the board for those things. So I, I, it is interesting that that's the one that we are like so married that, to. I think they feel most comfortable with it because, I mean, it, it, they give it for sleep, for instance, mm-hmm. right? So they just use it all the time for sleep or for migraines. Doug, I haven't had anybody die on this stuff, so it's right. got to be They're, fine. So they just, I don't know. But I mean, I have definitely seen clomipramine, um, but it's much less. Mm-hmm. It's much less. And so. I think clomipramine still... Not, it still has its issues. It still has its, yeah, it still has, you know, side effect profile and stuff, but... Definitely something to, to consider. And I, I don't think he mentions this comorbidity, but I'm just going to throw it in here because I thought of it. Um, obviously, with uh, um, with patients with IBS, and we've talked about the global symptoms of IBS yeah. and the discomfort and the pain and whatnot, then tristiclic sort of one of the recommended options for, for managing that. And so if you have a patient with concomitant depression, then that may push you towards a TCA quicker than normally. Yeah. And that's just an example of how we're going to incorporate these, <laughs> these comorbidities. It's just an example. Just an example. It is funny because, you know, you, you talk about stuff, you're like, I didn't learn that in school. School is very, or at least just talking about pharmacy school, for instance. It's very it's like... like the basics. Pr- basics, primary, not just basics, but it's very primary care based. Like, I don't feel like there's, like, when, when you get into what specialists do, they just do a lot of things that you don't learn or a lot of things that are not on label right just mm-hmm. a lot of off-label related stuff that's just a little bit different than what you might have thought of um i don't well, know why i bring that up but yeah. i just thought about it i feel like everybody has that view of the clinical world when you're still in school of like oh it's just this nice pretty little box that right. you can everybody gets to go into and then you can just you know it works out right and then you get into real life and you're like oh my gosh right like i'm working on getting this medication for a patient with this very rare genetic disorder that's causing epilepsy um and the, the medication I'm trying to get her uh, on has this increases your risk for having seizures. Like, so in, in any other situation, like you would look at it and say like, oh no, this patient can't take this. They have a history of seizures. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, but it's this like really rare situation. This kind of unusual stuff that you would, you yeah, know, you, you would see like, oh, avoid that medication because they have seizures. Unless but, they have the super rare genetic disposition, then right. pile it on. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's those nuances that really uh, separate the the really good clinicians from the guys who are just getting by. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's um, those are some options for for chronic pain. And some of it makes sense because TCAs, duloxetine, we kind of know that they have effectiveness for central acting pain disorders, but he doesn't really. Um, delineate it doesn't say like if they have fibromyalgia or some other something something else that's associated with central pain he just says any type of chronic pain disorder mm-hmm. so i thought that was notable yeah that is kind of a but I mean, you I, know like you got you got um i don't know a long long standing vertebral fracture like okay you know well TCA. yeah just give him a tc i mean honestly though it might actually be i mean he doesn't specify so benef- it might be beneficial because i mean i would think in that case especially in the back like that you would have a lot of nerve damage right. and stuff and i mean it's true where is the even if it's occurring in the calf it's gonna end up in the brain mm-hmm. somehow so. somehow somehow i don't take that one for my back pain i take that one for my leg pain <laughs> yeah <laughs> this other opioid for my back pain <laughs> All right, so uh, chronic pain, um, definitely something to run, you, you could run into, and um, you know, lots of different op- potential options there that you can kind of choose from. Um, a lot of those are going to be like augmentation options along with your you know, SSRI therapies or what have you, but uh, just something to, to keep in mind. Um, 
let's see, obsessive compulsive disorder on top of a patient having depression. Um, so we've, we did a whole episode on OCD as well. Sure so did. go check that out. <laughs> Is that what you two people say? <laughs> but uh, no. I think they say like, like, like and subscribe and yeah. yeah, hit the bell for to get notifications whenever we say think, something stupid. I don't think we have a. Oh, we're on YouTube, so yeah, of course, dude. We're, we're so on YouTube. Like and subscribe. Yeah, like hit the bell. Yeah, what are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so obsessive compulsive disorder, we went through, and, and basically SSRIs are still kind of the mainstay of, of treatment for those, except the doses tend to be a lot higher um, usually, yeah. and the, it, it may take. Um, you know, a longer duration to sort of see the true benefits of it, but it is something that uh, the medications will overlap. It's just the dosing that's going to look a little odd if you're used to only seeing general depression. Right. And some some studies show that the the curve doesn't really separate from placebo as far as effectiveness until five weeks and then gradually increases up to week 10. So um, even though we do tell people like six to eight weeks for full benefit with SSRIs in a normal situation, generally after a few weeks, you, you would see benefit above placebo. It just might not be the max benefit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, especially in this situation, I don't think that you can discount you uh, like you wouldn't just go down the normal treatment algorithm and then you get to resistant and then it's like oh yeah we should probably start thinking about the OCD like this we is have really worked him up for OCD the first thing you're going to be yeah. focusing on because you know you're going to have to hit higher doses right than with general than a patient who does not also have OCD yeah and and the other thing is with OCD secondary options you know there you can augment uh, the SSRI with uh, second generation antipsychotics um specifically risperidone and aripiprazole have data um and so that they also have data in depression as augmentation options as well so there's definitely some overlap there that you can kind of take advantage of right right sounds pretty straight this this next one I've heard of this yeah <laughs> you've heard of ADHD you're familiar <laughs> oh I'm real familiar with this one <laughs> Um, yeah, so of course patients can have ADHD as well as depression. ADHD can um, maybe be contributing to their depression if it's affecting their quality of life. Um, so of course with ADHD, we use um, stimulants like dextroamphetamine, methylphenidate, their first-line pharmacotherapy. Um, they haven't really been shown um, to be used or to be useful um, in major depression by itself. Um, apparently it's been looked at um but they haven't been um but um they can be in the situation that you have adhd um, as well as treatment resistant depression um they he, he suggests that they might be helpful in addressing the emotional dysregulation that's frequently associated with adhd um and they can respond to stimulant therapy so um yeah in this instance i would imagine that it would be more you're still taking your um, antidepressants, but you have ADHD, so we're going to treat the stimulant. Again, you would kind of think that that would be addressed like earlier mm -hmm. in the process, you know, unless it's not found out for a little while. Right. You know. Um, but in, it's interesting to me that there isn't more benefit from the stimulants just because of all the dopamine release and stuff. I mean, not that you would still use those routinely just for depression, just because of the you know, tolerance and abuse potential and all that stuff. But the, uh, I'm surprised there's not more of an impact with things like methylphenidate or whatever. I haven't looked deeply into the data. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's even, he's talked about it briefly in some other stuff and basically said it's hit or miss. For depression. Yeah. And yeah, again, like would, would you, in someone without ADHD, would you consider, I wouldn't consider, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Most know, people wouldn't. For the, but... for the de dependency and the risk of abuse. But, um, yeah, surprising that it's not effective. Mm-hmm. Like for, for like anxiety, for instance, you have benzos that you don't want to be used first line because of those dependency and concerns, but it's effective. Yeah. You know? So this is a little bit different, I guess. Yep. Yep. Uh, there's also, well, um, wait, let's put, wait, because we're at the, almost we're a little over half the oh, point. Good time. Let's do Cause you know, we'll always forget the we password. Do. The password for this episode is M D. D, so M like Mike, D like dog, D like dog. Also for major depressive disorder, <laughs> 23. So MDD 23. Yeah. And good luck on your test. It's going to be so hard. It's going to be grueling. Grueling. Password flows pretty well. 
MDD23. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds Look like at us a go. screen name or something. Yeah, I'm changing my screen name to it. <laughs> I'm going to change the like name to the podcast to this. Major depressive disorder? <laughs> yeah, I'm sad a lot. <laughs> Playing video games. Are you, a, are you a doctor of dentistry or medicine? I can't tell. MDD. Uh, neither. <laughs> Flip the D to the beginning. Yeah. Um, anyways, that's your password. So there are some secondary options for... ADHD, which um, at this point, he's just kind of just talking about treating ADHD. It doesn't feel like it's that much different than what you would do if someone doesn't have depression. I think you just, just add treating, it to it. Yeah. Right. So um, atomoxetine, branded as Stratera, is also effective, um, probably less than the stimulants. I like um, that he says probably. Though. Yeah, like, surely I'm, less than the stimulants. There's zero chance that the room does effective as stimulant. Um, doesn't really have the concern for... Um, for dependency, is it a control? No. Atomoxetine? Yeah. No, 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 no. It's not right. Um, it takes some time to reach effectiveness, five to ten weeks to reach maximum effectiveness. So I think that's notable. Mm. Um, he mentions that there have been some studies related to Wellbutrin, as well as um, Disipramine, which is in MAY. No, Disipramine is the uh, TCA. TCA, it's a TCA. Um, as second line options that are less effective in treating ADHD, so definitely would be considered less effective. Um, there's some open label studies related to bentlafaxine um, being somewhat effective in ADHD, um, and then some of these antidepressants like Effexor or Wellbutrin, you likely will have tried earlier on in the the algorithm. But um, again, the way the algorithm feels is that it has to be sequential in this way. But it feels like you could do these. Yeah. At the same time. Well, yeah, I think that's the ideal situation. And then the other way, see, I kind of like how he has it set up like this because I also feel like if you're getting to the point where it is resistant, I um, almost said resistant hypertension, resistant depression, and you haven't identified comorbidities, I think at that point he's laying all these out because it, that check, should be part of the, yeah, the, the resistant depression workup is yeah. looking for these differential diagnoses. I think there could also there could also be an argument for if you know you have both, um, for not treating both at the same time. Like, say it's a new patient, and this patient's depressed, this patient has ADHD. So, um, Osser would would argue that the more, like, sometimes you have to prioritize, mm -hmm. right? The more pressing issue would be the depression. Like, the, 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 this feels like, all I can see is, like, a um, young teenage or middle teenage, like, male is what comes to mind when I think of this. But, of course, there's plenty of people, with, <laughs> other people with depression and ADHD, but this is just what comes to mind. Um then um, he would argue that you would prioritize the depression first. Um, of course, you could start them both, but I think there's definitely an argument to do one at a time because uh, pill burden, mm -hmm. side effect profile, um, and maybe not knowing what's effective if you're starting both of these at the same time. So I could, I could see where you'd want to be a little um, stepwise in that sense. And so maybe if you did depression first and you're not getting what you need, add on the stimulant, I, yeah. I guess I could see that. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think it's, you know, it, it depends on the initial workup and all that stuff like that. If you were diagnosed with ADHD as a kid, I'm sure that if you, you know, diagnosed with depression, they're not going to be like, well, let's stop your Adderall. Let's start, right. you, you know, it's probably not going to be like that. Right. So. And then at, at that point, if you you were a kid and now you're 30 years old and you're depressed, then it might not be your ADHD that's because you're 30. causing, right? <laughs> it's just because in Mike's view, you're getting old, yeah. though, of course, that's not old at all. So another common comorbidity that you may run into is post-traumatic stress disorder. So PTSD and depression can go hand-in-hand hand together, potentially. Um, SSRIs are the only FDA-approved medications for treating PTSD, so they have that overlap there where you can kind of use the same medication for both disease states. Um, however, trauma-related nightmares, um, patients that are waking up, you know, with, you know, disturbing dreams, um, disturbed awakenings with, you know, without a nightmare recollection, then um, is, is another thing you may see in PTSD. And also, uh, daytime hypervigilance and uh, irritability are some other, you know, debilitating symptoms potentially with PTSD. So in that case, especially when it comes to, to one, it can kind of worsen or, or add those type of symptoms to the over, you know, the, the already depressive symptoms that are present. And then um, from a treatment option, even though we can use SSRIs, the nightmare piece is what we have some additional 
uh, options for when they have, when they have both PTSD and depression. Right. Um, so the one that you're probably the most familiar with is prazosin, um, or prazosin, I should say. Um, I always like to add an extra vowel in there. Some people say prazosin, so you just combine them both. Yeah. Prazosin. <laughs> yeah. So, and then uh, doxazosin is another one. Um, they're both alpha-1 antagonists, and uh, they, they seem to help um, pretty well when it comes to their, you know, reducing the number of, in, I guess, the the visual intensity of the nightmares and whatnot. Um, you know, as far as I, I would say from a side effect profile and, and also if just from a, I guess a routine use standpoint, prazosin is probably the one, the prazosin, I can't speak tonight. Um, <laughs> the, uh, prazosin is the one that you probably are going to see the most of, but doxosin does have some, have some data as well. Yeah. Um, definitely, uh, you know, when it comes to these type of meds, PTSD is really where you're going to see these being utilized at. Right. Um, yeah. The, 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 besides nightmares, um, they're not great for a lot of other things. Not really I, great for blood pressure. Yeah, not great for blood pressure. They're no. good at increasing oxygen demand and potentially increasing the risk of heart failure. <laughs> right. So, if you wanted, to, if if that's your cup of tea. Right. So that's PTSD. So that's really the four psychiatric um, comorbidities that he references that are important to make sure that you're aware of when you're treating depression. And really ends the algorithm. So past this, he would say that you are um, highly treatment resistant. He would also say that you're kind of past the scope of what the STAR-D trial covers. Um, and he, he doesn't really uh, go further than that just to say that there's additional things that can be considered but are kind of outside the scope of his algorithm. One thing that he definitely references and we'll mention in a moment is electroconvulsive therapy. Um which he actually mentions earlier in the algorithm for inpatient melancholic um, depression, uh, which um, uh, he seems to be uh, more of an advocate for it than maybe you would see in general practice. But, I mean, I definitely um, have seen it myself, seen it firsthand, and it's a very interesting um, and less, um, I don't know, aggressive thing than you would probably imagine than you've probably seen highlighted in in hollywood the um, the patients are sedated and then uh, they have um you know a note put on their temple and they crank it up you hear a little buzzing um the pa- crank it up to a thousand the patient does have a, a, a kind of a, a mild um convulsion like i mean it looks it, you, yeah you can't really sugarcoat that um but then it, it, it feel it, a little bit of a shock. It resolves, but it is extremely effective yeah. for a lot of patients with resistant depression. Yeah, um, for sure. So yeah, yeah. I guess we'll, we'll I'm gonna real briefly go through some of these other situations um, that aren't necessarily psych related comorbidities, but uh, and then we'll finish up with talking about depression with atypical features and and mixed features, just because those are things that are often overlooked. Um, so. The, if you have a patient who's got depression and they also have coronary artery disease, um, this isn't as something that's uh, discussed as often now, but you know, years ago when SSRIs were first being utilized, there was a concern that some of the downstream effects of the increase in serotonin and um, norepinephrine and whatnot, you know, the, you, you could potentially increase the risk of um, cardiovascular disease or, or some kind of cardiovascular event. And so uh, one of the studies that was kind of looking at the the safety uh, was looking specifically at sertraline. Um, and it was, you know, given in, to patients who had a history of major depression and um, also coronary artery disease, post-MI. And uh, uh, basically the SSRI did not, uh, did not show any increased risk of of cardiovascular disease or worsening of cardiovascular disease. And so th- th- we think that we can kind of extrapolate that to some of the other SSRIs, but th- if you're looking for one that truly has evidence to back it up, and, you know, on a patient who's had a recent MI or something like that, then um, sertraline seems to be a, uh, the one that we can go with. Right. On the flip side, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> in patients with chronic kidney disease, there's, much. there's some data to suggest that sertraline might not be... Um, is effective in patients with CKD that doesn't require dialysis. Um, so CKD, you would probably want to avoid sertraline and maybe go with one of the other options. There's also the issue of cardiac arrhythmias, which we bring up um, frequently with, uh, we bring up cardiac issues frequently with the SSRIs, the TCAs. Um, so 
TCAs, MAOIs can, of course, cause cardiac arrhythmias um, due to their effects on sodium and potassium channels. So you'd want to avoid those. Um, EKG monitoring of um, uh, patients using a TCA is a more accurate way to detect toxicity than if you were kind of monitoring a plasma level. So they recommend getting um, EKGs. Um, sertraline does appear to be safe um, in patients who are at risk of an arrhythmia after they've had an MI. Um, and then we've talked about this before, but we probably avoid citalopram because of its concerns about QTC prolongation. And then um, escitalopram, though it has less of a risk, above a certain dose, I think above 20 milligrams, it does um, carry a risk of QT prolongation. So I think be yeah, aware once of that. you get to 20, 20, I think that's why usually they do 10 with the elderly patients. Right. right. So what about the risk of a GI bleed? Um, because we, I'm sure we've all seen that warning that pops up on, you know, if in your EMR, or if you're at your pharmacy or what have you, if the patient's on something like a blood thinner, you know, what have you, and they also are an SSRI, this is increased bleed risk. So we know they're, you know, reuptake inhibitors um, of serotonin. And if we think about platelets, um, they have the, like the dense granule that stores some of their signaling uh mediators and things and so one of the one of the hormones one of the chemicals that um, that platelets use in order to start the aggregation process is serotonin um, and platelets are not able to make their own serotonin so they get it from their environments and the transporter that they use to take up the serotonin into inside the platelet is actually blocked by an SSRI and so you're uh, you're stopping that uh, uptake of, of serotonin into platelets so in theory you would decrease um, the the ability for the platelet to, you know, aggregate together and start the process of, you know, forming a platelet plug and all that good stuff. So that being said, um, there have been some ways around this with, for example, adding a PPI, um, you know, something like omiprazole, it, it can decrease the risk of a GI bleed, um, basically to where it's, it's just above like the control placebo patient groups that were not on SSRIs. Um, so that's one thing to do if you are concerned about that. Maybe the patient has a risk of it or something. And uh, is it, it's it's probably a little bit high. We don't usually think of it as clinically relevant, but it is probably a higher risk than you may think. I think we touched on this when we went through anxiety or something. I can't remember. Um, but uh, definitely something that um, is not completely you know a benign thing. I mean, you do need to, to keep that in mind that that um, – Increased bleed risk is a potential with SSRIs if they're already on uh, anticoagulants or antiplatelet therapy or something like that already. Yeah. Um, so then there's elderly patients and patients 65 years and older, and we are um, generally concerned with antidepressants with those patients because of the risk of sedation and falls and that sort of thing. Um, there's, of course, the bleed risk that Mike just mentioned. Um However, in a Cochrane made analysis, post-stroke patients, the bleed risk was non-significant with SSRIs. So um, it, it, there, it is on a spectrum depending on what bleed concern that you're primarily concerned with. Mike was mainly talking about GI bleeds, of course. Um, SSRIs and venlafaxine are associated with higher risks of hyponatremia, so low sodium. And that seems to be a recurrent theme, especially in the elderly patients. Um, so definitely if a patient is... Um, Having intolerable hyponatremia secondary to the SSRI use, consider something different. Um, they suggest mirtazapine as a different option and consider the side effect profiles of antidepressants um, prior to initiation or titration related to the um, sedation and that sort of thing. He also mentions um, a particular um, ECT, electroconvulsive um, treatment strategy for elderly patients. He says, right unilateral ultra brief ECT has been shown to have good efficacy and favorable tolerability in older adults with severe to severe depression. I thought that was kind of an interesting. Your option. ECT is not going to be just brief, right? It's ultra, ultra brief. brief. It's not even like super brief. It's not the, even it's, not even mega. It's brief. not max brief, but it's ultra brief. It's ultra brief. <laughs> ultra. ECT. What, a, what a dumb word. <laughs> That's just so dumb. But uh, yeah, so. Um, the other, and we'll jump into the last little bit after this, but the other, uh, patient you know, group that he mentions is women of childbearing potential or pregnant patients, because, you know, the, the risk of having a relapse of major depressive disorder, if someone becomes pregnant, even if they were in remission going into it, it, the relapse rate is as high as 43%. Um, you know, patients who 
become pregnant, you know, will experience there's about 10% of them will experience depression, even if it's the first time they've ever had to deal with it. Um, and you know, patients who are on antidepressants, yeah, they do have a high risk of, of relapse. Um, if they were to stop the medication abruptly or, you know, w- what have you, um, when they find out that they're pregnant. And so just making sure that you're encouraging patients to, because obviously it can have, um, effects on the, the, you know, the baby as well. And so, you know, just making sure that that's kind of something you're at least monitoring and, um, checking for it at follow-up appointments with patients that are carrying a child. Yeah. And, um, uh, he, he mentions, um, of course, that paroxetine. Did you say paroxetine? Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I didn't say that. So okay. That's he, a good point. He mentions paroxetine is the one that we would want to avoid for sure, uh, but also to recognize that there is concerns with the other ones mm-hmm. as well, um, with um, especially late exposure after the 20th week of pregnancy um, with um, persistent risk of, risk of persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. Um postpartum hemorrhage, prematurity, that sort of thing. So um, it's definitely a benefit-risk conversation yeah. to have. Absolutely. So we're almost out of time. So let's touch on uh, depression with mixed features. So we've talked about this in the past, but we'll, I want to make sure we touch on it again. Um, so this is a new specifier in the DSM-5, and it's for patients with basically three comorbid manic symptoms on most days of depression. So most commonly, we think of like raising thoughts, pressured speech, decreased need for sleep, increased energy, and bipolar depression does still need to be ruled out because that's obviously a different, you know, if they've had a full-blown manic or hypomanic event, then that's going to be a different treatment algorithm. But if it's truly unipolar depression and they have some of those mixed features like we we just talked about... um, then there's there's really we're very limited on what medication options we have. In fact, there's really only been one randomized controlled study um, looking at patients with depression and mixed features like on monotherapy because these patients are historically very difficult to get to to remission, especially if there's an underlying bipolar disorder that's been missed or misdiagnosed. Um, but patients with mixed features are, are tend to be more difficult to treat than just patients with standard depression. And uh, the the study that was done, um, you're looking at monotherapy, um, was was looking at Latuda specifically. Um, it showed that it was more effective than placebo with a number needed to treat of only three. And, um, and in that study, the other thing that was a little bit different was that the patients only had to have two of those manic features instead of three, which would be the criteria for DSM-5. So the patients were potentially not even quite as... I don't know if six the right word, but right. You know, didn't have as many of those uh, symptoms that we would be looking for in the first place. And they still number needed to treat of three. I don't think I've ever, you see too many of those that low, but um, mixed features. So it's, it's, I'll give you a super quick kind of anecdote is um, one patient that I saw who was told she had bipolar disorder, but then when we were kind of discussing, you know, what her, you know, her hypomanic event was the way she was describing it, it was just kind of like, it just seemed a little too like normal behavior that was just like, you know, she's like, Oh, I went out and spent a lot of money. And, you know, she's telling me like, I just went out and, you know, bought some clothes and right. did that. But it wasn't like I bought the same, I bought 10 of the same shirts. Like I've had some patients tell me. And, and so the, the more we started talking, the more it was like, well, who diagnosed you with bipolar? She's like, I don't even remember at this point. And <laughs> so we ended up switching to Latuda thinking it was potentially mixed features, not full on bipolar pressure. And she's like, did fantastic with Latuda and it was it was awesome it was like the first like one of the first like behavioral health interventions that I had that based on this data and I was like whoa look at me go with the power of someone way smarter than me <laughs> in my in my hand I can help patients but uh depression with mixed features so yeah. make sure that's on your radar it should be it should be anxious uh distressed uh, and what a typical we're running out of time. Yeah, he uh, lastly he mentions depression with anxious distress, or if you have high levels of anxiety. And so he he mentions the Stardy trial and other studies finding the situation to be common um, and generally associated with poor response to antidepressants and um, most other augmentation strategies. So he says that, um, and I kind of referenced this uh, at the top, but sedating atypical antipsychotics such as Seroquel um, can be used by itself or as an augmenter to the antidepressant. Um, Though, of course, there are a significant amount of side effects associated with Seroquel. Um, and he mentions, uh, and this is, I think, the first time he mentions aripiprazole. Maybe once other time. But mm-hmm. aripiprazole, he mentions, is an effective augmenter as well. Yeah. And uh, definitely, I think, um, 
Yeah, it's one of those things that that we we can we tend to think of like the antipsychotics as being these like really, you know, hardcore behavioral health medications, but there's so much you know, utilization for them in, in something like depression with anxious distress and all that. And and when we look at something like simple as like the STAR-D trial, if we take the patients who, you know, they everyone was start on citalopram and if they did not reach remission and they were in that switch group, they could potentially get switched over to sertraline. And when you look at just the general population, the ones that got switched over to venlafaxine, switched over to bupropion, or switched over to a different SSRI, all did pretty close to the same until you start separating them out by the patients who also had concomitant anxiety. And then those patients did not do nearly as well when they got switched to an SSRI compared to the ones that got switched to venlafaxine or bupropion. So he actually makes a, a, a case for potentially using bupropion as a, as a go-to when right. there's depression and, and uh, anxiety together. Right. Yep. So kind of interesting. Um, but uh, I feel like the bupropion is that a lot of people are scared to use that one in, in anxiety because they think it's going to be too stimulating, which it can be for some patients, but for the most part, I feel like it does really well. Yeah, it does. Um, and then I guess the last thing we'll finish up on quickly, I know we're out of time, uh, but we'll talk about uh, atypical features. Okay. Um, and I think you had started to, to mention some of this anyway, but um, I mean, atypical features, is that something you heard about when we were in school? Because I feel like I've never... Um, no, not particularly. No, I think the only time it came up for me was on a psych rotation. Oh, okay. Did you have a psych rotation? I did. That's yeah. nice. Yeah, that would be ideal. Um, so, atypical features. Basically, it's another DSM five. Um, you know, kind of subcategory of depression. So, um, it's it's looking at. Um, you know, patients that are having these significant mood reactivities that are combined with at least two of the following clinical characteristics. Um, hyperphagia, um, if they have hypersomnia, they have leaden paralysis, or if they have pathological rejection sensitivity, um, which is kind of what Cole was alluding to earlier, um, where a patient, you know, has these feelings of, you know, their family members or whoever just doesn't like them or is unhappy with them for whatever reason. There's no like data to support that that's actually happening um, or, or evidence, whatever you want to call it, not data, but, but uh, is there data that people don't like you? <laughs> um, but uh, it's just kind of something they've come up with in their own, in their own mind. And, and that's a, a symptom, especially if there's some of those others are, are there that of atypical depression. And those patients tend to be a lot more difficult to treat as well. And so SSRIs, bupropion, things like that are, um, they, they can be effective, but it's not always the case. And it's actually one of the only times where you'll see the MAOIs kind of make a, a, a comeback and recommendation. So he, he says that the MAOIs, MAOIs rather have, um, some of the best data in treating atypical features. And the two that he mentions specifically, um, are the selegiline, which is not the one I would, would kind of come to mind, um, selegiline and then um, phenylazine. Those are the two that he mentioned specifically, and um, selegiline being an MAOIB or MAOB inhibitor, um, so it's more selective and usually used for like Parkinson's and things, but um, selegiline still is a potential option in this, in this setting. If an MAOI is something you're just trying to stay away from for all the different monitoring parameters and diet restrictions and all that stuff, then um, he also says you could consider an SSRI plus aripiprazole. There's some data apparently with that combo um, with atypical features. And then at that point, you just move on. If that's still not enough, you move on and start the TCAs or the venlafaxine-mirtazapine combo just like you would if they didn't have atypical features. Right. Right. Anything else, man? Is that uh, – I know that we've kind of started flying to the end <laughs> the end of it there, but – we No, that's we good. I like it. I think we, we touched on everything. We took a topic we've kind of done before and hit some more specifics on it. So going to look at us go. I like doing that. <laughs> we didn't have to use the word broad overview. Brought over, yeah. I'm sure someone else will use it. <laughs> what is it? What is the? They give it. They uh, give a, a, a high level overview. High and level I was. Overview. I like to think in my mind. They mean that we're really smart, <laughs> <laughs> and not that it's a super basic review. Right. Like, oh, really high level. Cool. Right. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I use high level to mean broad. But I, I was talking about. Um, See, I, I, I've always, I know. I was talking to somebody the other day when I was giving a talk, and I was like, "This is very high level. This is very high level." And I, I, I meant that it was. 
broad and on the surface. He's but like, this is after the fact, I adding. thought about it and I was like, I wonder if they thought I meant like this is very like so that's legit the, stuff. That's I was saying what I would have thought. hundred percent. I'm not going to use that phrase anymore. I, I've never really heard the term high level until I started reading the comments on on Reddit about us. Um, I literally would, like was giving a talk and was qualifying my talk with saying, I don't have a lot of time. So this is very high level. <laughs> I'll be like, this guy thinks he is so good. Great. <laughs> Listen, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to hit you with the most high-level thing you've ever seen and blow your minds and then I head on out. I think there's two ways there's to a, interpret there, it. There's but a couple people that left that seminar going, wow, <laughs> that guy was confident. <laughs> Great. No, I'm just kidding. I, I feel like probably I'm the one that just doesn't No, I, I, I literally, I did think about it afterwards that I was like, I wonder hmm. how they interpreted high level. You see him just walking around just like, right. he's like, that doesn't seem It's that like high. saying it's all downhill from here. It can mean everything's going to go bad from here. Right. Or it can mean it's smooth sailing. That's like, true. It's all downhill from yeah, here. Yeah, it's all downhill from here. Well, I, what if I crash? Yeah, right. <laughs> what if my brakes don't work? Right. That could be terrible. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, that's uh, the obvious way to end the podcast <laughs> with that discussion. But uh, sorry for those of you who are still with us. Uh, appreciate everything you guys you know do to support us and, and continuing to listen to us. Make sure you go check out FreeCE.com if you're not already a member. They have so many awesome opportunities to increase your, your toolbox of knowledge. And uh, they have monographs. They have live events. They have panel discussions all kinds of good stuff so whatever your type of you know learning you know speed is or whatever kind of learning you like to do and it's not boring and all that good stuff um, they probably have a good option for you so check them out and then you can get access to all of our ce accredited episodes and uh you can just rack up so much smartness hours as they call it. That's, I'm sure they do call it smartness hours. Yeah, yep. So uh, if you guys have any questions for Cole or myself, uh, the, the emails will be in the show notes. You can also reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, the, te- the phone number to text will be in the show notes as well. Uh, for those of you who do want more like structured lectures, um, check out Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. Uh, I have all my pharmacotherapy lectures on there with PowerPoint slides you can download. And um, there's there's quite a few of them that are separated by, by uh, disease state or, or system, or, you know, physio- physiological system at least. And uh, they also, I just got an email today saying that I have now been approved to be able to offer free trials on my Patreon. Nice. So I was like, thank you, email. I applied for that for months ago and I forgot about it. So some of y'all might be getting an opportunity for some free trials. We'll see. I don't know how it works yet, but we'll find out and give you guys a free (laughs) trial. So check that out and uh, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a good one.